This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Brandon Little, who's the Vice President of Design at Shinola. Brandon, welcome. Thank you. Good to uh, hear from you, Ariel. Yes, I um, remember our first adventure together. We had a lot of great chats some years ago, and it was on a trip to STP, uh, which is Swiss Technology Products, which is owned by the Fossil Group, and at the time you're working at Zodiac, and now you're at uh, Shinola. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about what your position is at Shinola, so people understand. And and how did you get uh, how did you get to your position at Shinola? Sure. Um, so my position at Shinola is, is I oversee design, um, specifically, clearly in this context for watches. Um, I also oversee design for other categories within the group. Um, so home, other things like that. Um, and oversee that team that does all the work there. And, um, the transition, um, obviously I had, you and I met and I was, uh, overseeing, uh, Zodiac at that point and relaunching Zodiac, which was amazing that that team continues to do really amazing work. And, um, the opportunity came up underneath bedrock, which is the, uh, ownership of, uh, Shinola, and we own other things and have investments in other things as well, to start a small studio underneath uh, that umbrella and sort of downsize, but have a little bit of a different approach. Obviously, you know, very boutique, very focused on um, sort of qualitative higher-end products and special relationships. And uh, that gradually sort of morphed into my involvement here with Shinola, both directly and indirectly. And um, that was five and a half, maybe six years ago. Um, over COVID, obviously the world changed, a lot of people changed and uh, opportunities came up and we started maximizing uh, some of the skills that I had brought to the table to sort of look at Shinola and add some different perspectives there, um, working with the well-established team here in Detroit. And through that um, time period, I ended up relocating here and uh, taking over sort of the design portion of what we do at Shinola. Now, for those who don't know, um, about Shinola and the background. Uh, it, it's an interesting backstory, to be honest. And there's a lot of nuances to it. And I think it's a really cool brand to be at. I think the most important thing to say about Shinola is it's an American company through and through. Yes. Um, it started with the idea of being a watch company that also makes other stuff. And of course, the irony is that Shinola as a name is a, is a classic Detroit name, and there was an opportunity, I think, to buy the building. But Shinola traditionally made shoe polish. It was a shoe polish company. That's why it's yeah. called Sh- Shinola. Yeah. Um, and 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 there was a lot of interesting financial, tax, patriotic uh, reasons uh, for for opening up in Detroit. That's a whole other interesting story. But now the sort of Shinola legacy has become all about watches and leather goods and some other things like that. And the person who started it is the person that also helped start um, Fossil. So it's no relation to Fossil Group anymore, but it's similar mentality and sort of working within the same space a little bit. So a slightly different approach to a similar type of theme. Shinola has been the beneficiary of a lot of sort of marketing budget and a lot of investment. And so I think 
for a lot of people who don't know watches, they might not they might know Shinola because there will have been a Shinola store um, or advertising or something related to that. There's been sort of Shinola Disney watches and a lot of interesting uh, things related to the Mickey Mouse stuff, which is honestly very, very cool. So I'm just trying to give a little bit of background because Shinola is still relatively new to the watch space, but there's a really interesting origin story and, and how the brand operates, I think, is um, distinctive to say the least. What would you add? Um, about yeah. that to help explain Shinola because again I, sure. I still have yet to even go to the manufacturer even visit a few times I will go actually uh, in a couple of months but uh, you know help help flesh out a little bit more yeah. the the entity which is Shinola absolutely so the 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 origin of it came about from uh, job creation actually that was sort of like the the impetus for the whole thing to manifest that at a point in time um, there were persons involved and the idea was to onshore a movement factory, um, and and that happened to be an, an item of, of location was Detroit. Um, Detroit was really in a bad situation at that point in time. There's a skilled labor here that's um, ingrained with the automotive industry and a lot of other industries that were here. Um, and so the real impetus there was to you know, hey, the question was, you know, can we can we onshore making watch movements and assembling watch movements in the United States? Can that be in Detroit? And the answer was yes. It's, that was 10 years ago um, when that all sort of transpired. Uh, and since then, uh, we've continued to add. That was, you know, that we founded the company in 2011. The factory um, opened up in uh, 2012 uh, in partnership with, with Rhonda, who's a great partner of ours, and, and brought all that. It basically shipped over a, a mini uh, movement factory. And we started training uh, individuals here um, throughout that time period. And our first watch was in 2013, um, which was the Runwell uh, with our uh, Organite movement that we uh, assemble here in Detroit. So, so that was sort of the impetus of the whole thing. And that is really taken off. We also added in uh, a watch factory, uh, I mean, a watch strap factory in 2014, um, where we have our own uh, in-house uh, watch uh, strap uh, department. So we bring in leathers. It's all stitched, finished, the, the, everything from A to Z um, in that way. And um, and now, again, like we're 10 years in. Uh, I think we've sold our, our, our millionth watch, if I remember correctly, something, something like that. Um, and we continue to add. So we've got everything from technicians. Uh, obviously, we assemble um, our watches here. We have assembly of our movements. We also have uh, automatic movements coming in from Switzerland that we um, calibrate, test, assemble, recalibrate, test, um, that sort of thing. It's not easy when you get those things, uh, shipped over. So it's really a full on process. Plus we have, you know, obviously design here. We have product development here. We have over 500 employees. Um, currently we have 100 of those in and out of the factories, uh, which are vertical, which are literally right on top of us, uh, in our building. Um, and the goal is to try to do everything that we can, um, A, to, to bring jobs to Detroit, that's the main thing, B, to sort of try to sustain that craft or the skill level of the U.S. So some of that, that happens within the watch sector that we have. Some of that happens within our leathers. Uh, we go to a very great emphasis to try to bring American uh, manufacturing in. So we work with a lot of craftsmen, sometimes in very small projects, sometimes in, in larger projects. Um, and we continue to sort of expand and, and, and tackle different, um, different opportunities, but, you know, watches is where we started watches is, you know, something that we all have a very strong background in. 
and something that we're very passionate about. And, and I think you know, when you're coming, like you had said, you're going to see these people that are just incredibly engaged and we train all of our persons, right? So they show up and there isn't like a, a network or, you know, some sort of other situation where you can go and get watch assembly training it just doesn't exist. So we had to really sort of create that. And um, it's really special when you see everybody come through. And then those persons, we have people who, who have been with us from the very beginning and now uh, manage entire um, lines within the factory. So it's just really a uh, pretty amazing thing. And unless you sort of come in and see it, I think you had mentioned earlier that, you know, people see, you know, advertisements and things like this. And of course, like we market what we do, but um, really it's, it's, it's a very much a labor uh, of love. Um, and very much a commitment to sort of not only Detroit, but to, to the process of, of making things, period, um, and doing them in the United States, which is nice. There's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I don't even yeah. know where to start. Um, <laughs> I, I, I guess I want people <laughs> to... <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's important that people know a little bit of the origin story, right? Because yeah. as you just said, so many things in there that deserve so much conversation from making watches into America to... Uh, reestablishing craftsmanship to the process of making a watch that's increasingly American, starting from sort of building kits to actually making certain things here to this related to job creation and mm -hmm. uh, redevelopment of, of downtown Detroit. Um, what, what comes to mind is the history that in the 19th century, America was the top dog for watchmaking. A lot of people may not recognize yeah. that globally speaking, when it came to the best watches at the best prices and the fastest production, America was the winner. And it yeah. embarrassed Switzerland. And, and Switzerland actually sent over uh, <laughs> spies. There was like a famous spy that wrote this sort of damning report when he went back to Switzerland being like, Americans are kicking our ass. We've got to do something <laughs> about it. And it, it, it took quite a while. Um, and it wasn't really until the mid-20th century where uh, it just didn't become as economically feasible to produce watches in America, and a lot of the sort of outsourcing began. Uh, Timex was actually one of the, sort of the original ones. They were like, hey, let's let's move a lot of stuff over to the Philippines. It was A lot yeah. of it was related to complicated geopolitical strategies with the U.S. government and the war efforts yeah. and, yes. and sort of yeah. de democratic colonialism and, and things like that. It was just a yeah. very deep thing that was so much above and beyond, like, let's go to a cheaper place and make our watches. It was so much deeper than that. So America, as a place to make watches in the 20th century, obviously stopped being that. And Switzerland picked up a lot of the slack when it comes to luxury watches, but the, the volume watches never really gained a lot of ground in Switzerland. That obviously moved over to Asia. Now, Shinola is sort of reflecting upon that past when America did make a lot of those watch um, uh, elements uh, in the country, and well, all of the elements in the country, and tries to to, to not only um, establish a, a new foothold on that history, but from a nostalgia perspective, seems to remind people like, hey, remember when stuff was made in America? Remember where you could buy something that your your neighbors had put together if you sort of live in, in Detroit or or yeah. something that was made in the USA? And it's 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 a, you know in Shinola in the past has, you know, uh, they've had to clarify a little bit about what made in America means. But at the end yep. of the day, there is this desire by many people, whether you're into watches or not into watches, to to have a watch that's made in America. And 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 you may you know this and I know this. There's so many people who have attempted to reestablish watchmaking in America, who have thought, oh, it's easy to make movements mm -hmm. here, it's easy to make dials or hands or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
you know, in running into these issues. I remember going back to Timex, a couple of years ago, they came out with the American Documents Collection, which doesn't have a movement made in America. It's still the, the, the Rhonda, but everything else is made in America. And we, we went to some of those factories, and those people who, who ran those factories were absolutely humbled by the finishing requirements and mm-hmm. the, the small tolerances of watch parts and things like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, you sort of glossed over it, which I understand that you would do. But for most people, they need to understand it's not just buying the machines and opening up like a production facility. Like, uh, yeah. oh, we're making watches yeah. now. Yeah. Like, no, it's, mean, it's more than that, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, like speaking about this in, in, in earlier was the – the watch industry in its total is a, is basically a cottage industry. So there isn't one end all be all, let's just say factory or supplier, right? Like and you've got people who make tools and then there's a handful of these guys who make tools, the perfectly flat stamping tool to make a hand. So even without that guy, you don't end up with hands or you don't end up with indexes or you don't end up with the little prongs on the back of the index that goes through the dial plate. And then you've got, you know, di- I could go on like dial plates that are 0.001 millimeters thick that are perfectly flat. So you have all this amazing, you know, to me, that's the beauty of watchmaking. It's just the magic is, and you only get it really there. You know, maybe you get it in cars and some other things, but it's so big that it's hard sometimes to necessarily capture all in one shot on a wristwatch and a timepiece you get you get endless amounts of craftsmen and women who have to make something at an absolute remarkable precise tolerance and a lot of people and and you've seen this in in industries you know there's there's people that specialize in just certain things um and some of those things are in asia some are in germany some are can be found in the united states some are in asia so you know and I think the, the interesting part, the most interesting part, in my opinion, about watchmaking, and I think it's part of the beauty about what's going on in the United States where you get persons pulling these pieces in and working with all these different people, is that gained knowledge when you are forced to work as a group to bring something intrinsically really incredible uh, to reality. And I think, um, you know, blessing in disguise is you can't, you, you, you physically, the infrastructure isn't here to make everything in the United States. It's, it's all, it's, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's, it's an in, incredibly daunting task. Yeah. And we've gone through that process of trials and tribulations on how far can we push or how much can you compromise? Cause you know, clearly you could, you know, maybe you could machine a case here, but you'd have to make maybe certain compromises to aesthetic quality, attention to detail, finishing, you brought up finishing, finishing's a almost an alchemy. It's sort of like a, you can't really automate finishing. You've got to have someone with the hand. Yeah. To you come up it. with a formula and then yeah. you train someone to follow the formula. There's no yeah, way of for, yeah. writing like an instruction manual <laughs> and hoping that someone like can yeah. replicate it. And some of these places are generational, you know, like, so it's, 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 it's a, it's a task. I think there's a lot of very interesting momentum, um, to try to figure that out to at least the best of your knowledge. Um, and, bring in what you can. There's certain people that have sort of taken it upon themselves to learn certain skills, whether that's a guilloche dial um, or, you know, some movement components um, and, and these other things. And I think, you know, I hope at least that what we're trying to do and trying to communicate in the best way that we can at Shinola is to bring awareness to that, bring pride to that. Because I think, you know, there is a intrinsic pride it's, it's when you go to a car manufacturer and, and someone makes something and it's running and it's beautiful and it 
takes you somewhere. There's a very strong sense of pride. I liken it to like the a city's pride with their sports team, right? Like you know how that is, right? Like in LA, right? right? So right. That, that's it's like as deep as you know religion almost. And I think you get that when you um, when you dedicate yourself to something. Uh, you get that when you learn something and it's using your hands, and then you know that dedication. Uh, both to the craft and then that dedication to making something that is seemingly very challenging. Um, and the output's amazing. And I think the the return on that is is amazing as well. The, the, the people that you see that really have, you know, incredible pride with their products, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see. And I think it comes through in the product. Absolutely. Now, let's get practical for a moment here. There's a difference between a product being 100% made in the United States and it being from a U.S. company, a lot of it's made in the United States. Of course, yep. practically speaking, you're going to have to get things from a variety of, of suppliers. Yep. From a marketing standpoint, which one of those is the most important one to, to achieve? Because I'm under the belief that most consumers in America aren't really gung-ho about it being 100% American or else I won't buy it. They want a brand that they feel is American, that speaks to their values, that you know communicates to them. I guess the question is, am I right in that? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's about, ultimately, it's about trust um, and understanding the value proposition and relating to that brand. So whatever that brand is, right? Um, you, right. you have a certain, you're like, oh, I see myself as part of that, or I value what they're trying to do. I want to be a part of that. Um, we get a lot of that. We have tours through our factory um, daily. Um, and you, you out of that tour, you, you get a chance, you can go to, to our Canfield store where we, uh, have our store and our, our first store, um, in Detroit. Um, and people just walk away with a totally different point of view because it's, you're, you're, it's, it, it, I don't think it has anything to do when they're walking out, whether it was made in or built in or this, that, or the other, it's, it's surely understanding the ingenuity and the passion and the creativity and the craft, uh, to try to do this and walk away with something that represents that, I think is very, I think that's really the proposition, right? I don't, I don't, I would agree. I think it's, it's much deeper than just, you know, some sort of tagline or some sort of, you know, made in America or, you know, built in America, as we'd like to say it, um, even though it's very, you know, relevant, but it's much more emotional than that. Okay. So you went, you said something interesting about trust and trust for me begins with developing a relationship with the consumer. And what I noticed that Shinola did very early on is immediately try to create a relationship with the consumer before pushing a particular model, before really focusing on anything related to like a distinctive design. Mm -hmm. What I saw was a brand trying to develop a relationship with the consumer to get their attention. What did Shinola know that made that possible because I think that's the right approach. And what can other brands learn? Because what we see is most other brands in the space, especially in, in Europe and Asia, immediately just throw a, prod a product into the market and maybe, if ever, get to actually developing a relation with the client. Talk a little bit about that because I think that's so important. Sure. Um, you know, we have over 22 stores uh, currently and over 500 points of sale, actually. And we spend an incredible amount of time both either on the floor of those stores asking ourselves like is this relevant is it good what do you think do you like it um, obviously i mentioned earlier that we have an open door policy um and that's a so sort of a corporate culture that we we have um inviting people in to um 
have a look, making sure that we're asking people, hey, are we doing this the right way? And it's just been really, I think it's actually very refreshing. I mean, you know as well as I do, there's certain industries that can be relatively closed off, right? So you put up these sort of barriers and these walls and you deliver something and you hope that it's relevant and you hope that it's accepted. Um, and I think, you know, the, the corporate culture that we have here, you know, it's very much a small, a small uh, company and when we have the ability, and especially with our sales teams, we had them in actually today for three days. And I spent literally six hours of my day just talking product. And sometimes that's in a formal meeting, and sometimes that's in a very informal. And we ask a lot of questions. What's working? What's not working? How close can we get to the consumer? How close can we uh, have a, you know, can we get an event? Can we get in front? What do they like? What do they not like? And, and I can tell you so many examples of us listening and then trying to understand through our lens, how can we relate to that? How do we approach it? And then how do we deliver it back? So that I think when, if you're a customer of Shinola and and you make a certain uh, statement, or if you are asking about something, or if there's a need, I think we're, we're really unique in that we listen and we turn around and we pivot and we try uh, in our own way, at least to answer the question and, and bring something to the market that, that continues that relationship. Right product is a giving and give and take it's it's a push and pull i think you can either pull constantly or you can push constantly but the healthiest part of that and the glorious part of creation like creating is working with people and listening like if you're just sort of in a box and you're in like the basement and you're just sort of like creating for yourself it can be a little short-sighted of course it could be brilliant and really go somewhere and, and amazing but it's it's also you know a collaborative family atmosphere that I think, you know, can be trying, right? Because you got to be willing to listen. And sometimes what you hear isn't what you want to hear, um, <laughs> right? Um, but ultimately, if you stop for a second, and, and we do this a lot, and we stop for a second, we ask ourselves like, okay, well, is there something to that? Like, is there, is there a way forward that we could fold that in, right? And ultimately, I think you end up with a better product. And I think you end up with an incredible, we have a, what we call the foundry, which is a group of, of clients and, and the amount of, of effort that we go through to talk to them, to listen to them in digital formats and in, in live formats. It's really quite special. And I think it's, it's rather unique to what oh, we Oh, is that do. like an elite focus group? No, it's, I mean, it is and it isn't. It's a, it, there is definitely a dialogue, but you're, there's, you know, we have in-store events for these persons. There's certain access that you get um, to, to pre-purchase um, things. And it's, it's, a, it's a really unique thing that you can become a part of. Sounds like a great way to learn. Yeah, it is. And, and we, I, again, I think, you know, we really do listen. It's, it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's not a, it, that's not like a, a, a half false statement. It's a, it's very true. Like we really do listen. I mean, it's really amazing when, when you get feedback and you're able to implement that or at least have, you know, this is another thing for like, if you ask me for a brand's advice is like, if you're not going to go somewhere that your customer or your audience would like for you to go, at least have a way of articulating why not. Often you just don't, but sometimes there's actually a really good reason that, that you, you're not, you can't, can't do it to the skill and the, the detail that you want, or it's just something that you don't feel is appropriate for the brand to go. And I think that that's also very refreshing when you can actually authentically right. sort of communicate that, right? Well, um, you you also have worked very closely with European luxury companies. We'll talk a little bit about that soon. But again, I like to compare and tra- contrast how 
uh, the companies in different countries operate, you know, in Switzerland, France, England, Germany, United States, mm-hmm. Japan, China, businesses all in the watch space behave very, very differently. And I've always felt when it comes to retail consumer relationships, America, and then probably next to that, um, the UK has done it best. And what I, what I mean by that is developing a direct line of communication with the consumer, talking to them on a regular basis, creating material which is relevant to them, um, really making sure that the customer relationship side of, of your business is as healthy and productive as possible. That mm-hmm. holding hands with a high-quality product development and manufacturing uh, arm of the company seems to work really, really well. And what I find is that in Europe, they tend to balance it very heavy on the product and very, very light on the human relationship side. And they keep saying how important human relationships are, but it really isn't um, something that that we see that they invest in. So I'm just trying to, I want you to sort of advocate uh, for this, the investment in this, because ultimately it's just about investment in human effort, right? Like they can do it, they just choose not to. And I'm, I, I want you to say why they choose not to and maybe speak to them and convince them why they should. <laughs> I don't think, I, there's no, I'm not going to convince anyone <laughs> in, in sort of their, you know, sometimes, I mean, that's also, it could be a deep thing. I mean, that could be a, rooted in a, in a cultural difference. You know, um, I mean, you, you, the places that you brought up, you know, if you if you think about the UK, if you think about France, if you think about Japan uh, or you think about China, they're all really very different, and especially in how they are as a society and, and how they communicate. Right. And, and how they make things and their attentions of what they put their emphasis on. And I think, you know, maybe that's the way to look at it is like if you think of Switzerland, at least in my opinion, I've had the pleasure of of you know, working in and out of there, you know, almost my entire career, the emphasis was on engineering. The emphasis was on quality, uh, control. Um, you know, and I think, I don't think it took a back, I don't think other things were like brushed away because it wasn't important. I think that was just the emphasis. Like when you're there, you can see it, Like they're just like so hyper-focused on this. I think when you're in Japan, you get, you know, also very hyper-focused on craft, very hyper-focused on, on slowing that down and that process of creation. You know, you'll walk into a little showroom in Japan and there's one person, they might not say a word to you and it's not out of disrespect or it's not probably out of like this eagerness to sort of communicate and talk. It's just their focus is somewhere else. Um, and I think, you know, the U.S. Has, has been known to be sort of that hospitable, like, hey, what's going on? You know, it's got that kind of southern thing i mean you can go of course to different parts of the country but you know if you're in the south or in my opinion if you're in new york or la i've always been greeted and people are like hey what's going on welcome to my store welcome to this hey come take a seat you know or you know and i think like that is very much a western thing sometimes it's too much sometimes we can be known (laughs) to like be like oh you know and and it can come across also like in insincere because it's also like Dude, does everybody really greet you that way? You know, like you'll hear people, you know, from overseas be like, I, I don't know, like there's too much talking. Um, or, you know, you'll get, you'll hear of people in, you'll be at a quiet dinner in Italy and you'll hear like, oh, that must be the American, you know, like kind of scenario, right? Um, and so I think it's just a mixture. I think it's, it's interesting. I think it is a place that, you know, we bring our cultural differences to the table. And I think one of those is that, that welcoming, come in, have a seat. Let's talk about this. Let's get to know each other. Um, what do you think about this? Hey, by the way, uh, you know, I make watches. Um, 
Whereas then I think you can end up in the seat in Milan, Italy or, or France or, or Switzerland. And the first question, the first statement is I, I make timepieces. These are the pieces that I make. And they run you through the attributes and through the parts of that watch before they get into it's like, hi, my name is X. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're kind of the reverse of that. It's hi, my name's Brandon. I make watches and I make them. And then the other is like, I make watches. And then by the way, my name is whatever. So I think that's just differences. And it, it's probably like the joys of the a global industry. And that is cottage. I mean, you know this more <laughs> than anyone. Like we're all like the, in these little micro bustles, but in, in the in the glory days of whether that was Basel or SIHAs when those people, all those personalities would come together and it'd be just this amazing group of somewhat like-minded, but also completely different uh, It's like the UN. It's like the UN. That's how it was. <laughs> yeah, it, was it was. It was sort of glow. I thought I still, you know, miss those days. I thought it was, I, I do too. It was I really too. amazing. Well, look, I'm so glad you're talking about these topics because I think that what you may not know is that on the European side, they're mystified by companies like Shinola. Like they see you pop up. They see what appears to be success. They see that your website looks different. You got stores. But one of the things they notice is like, and this is this is actually changing very quickly at Shinola, but for the most part, you focused on to them what were quite low-end watches. Meaning mm -hmm. for them, they're like, why do you build so much brand around watches that aren't like up to our standards? Because you know, you focus mostly on quartz and you know, a lot of watches uh, you know, under a thousand dollars. And again, they're I don't want to be say it in a bad way, but they're kind of snobby. They're like, gotta be mechanical, gotta be more expensive, da-da-da. Sure. So they're like, you put so much effort into the brand, why don't you put more effort into the products? Now you are, but what they don't understand is that you in today's world, you build a brand first. If it, and what a brand is like a person, and a person has a personality, and if pop culture today resonates with this personality at least some elements of people do, then you've got a successful brand. And then you can start to sell them stuff. If you have an amazing product without a brand these days, you'll find nerds like me that will buy it, but it's not enough people to get you to that critical mass. And so what Shinola and its founders have always understood is this sort of bigger picture of what it takes to have a successful brand in, 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 the, in the world. And I think what a lot of the watch brands uh, do not know, even the older ones, is really that formula for successful brand. And I think that that's one of the major things that Shinola has done so superbly well, continues to do well. And now, which is amazing, you being there takes the product to a completely other level. And let's, let's, start, let's start with your time in Milan. You're one of the few people who has taken a, a, a watch design course. I want you to talk about it. As an American, mm -hmm. you're one of the few ones and, and this is so crucial because we're going to talk about product right now. And I want to spend the rest of the conversation talking about product because it's so crucial. You know how to make a good watch. How did you get there? Explain. Oh, uh, it's part luck, I guess. I, the, the stars aligned. I mean, uh, you know, I, I little fun fact, I come from a very small town in southern Louisiana called Lafayette, Louisiana, and had moved to New York after school and was enthralled i found a, a vintage um south bend so you, we brought up some american brands earlier south bend was an incredibly um prolific brand uh pocket watch brand and anyway on seventh avenue and um 
in the 20s, um, back in the early 90s, there used to be all these flea markets. They're no longer there. It was an amazing time in New York City. But they were, you would find little, little, little booths where they'd have watches and stuff. And they had a pocket watch and a pocket watch movement. And for many people, I think, you know, you kind of start and you're like looking at this large movement, right? It's just, so I don't know, like 45 millimeters to 50 millimeters big and that escapement and everything is just sort of ticking away. And I was like, oh my God, this is absolutely amazing. Um, and that was my introduction to watches. And then quickly after that, I started to try to research how, how on earth would someone get into that field? I had training as in the jewelry world as a, as a metalsmith. Um, I know how to use my hands and obviously I was in design at that point in time. And, and, um, through just a chain of events, I had been doing research on Richmond Group, and Richmond Group had just founded Creative Academy, which you're you're speaking about uh, in Milan. And um, I was bouncing in and out of Miami and, and New York at that point, and um, I put together a portfolio. I wanted to design watches. I had also applied uh, to the Rolex Center, which I think was in Pennsylvania at the time. Um, and they were take they were trying to educate people into sort of this automatic thing. I mean, this was really a long time ago. This is 25 years ago or plus. And um, the situation was in in uh, Richmond, and I'll give them credit for this, even though it's, you know it's uh, it's a different brand, a different company. Um, they saw that they needed um, skill. They needed you know youthful ideas coming into the company, and so they had this thing, Creative Academy. They accept. Uh, one person from every country. So it's 30 people, 30 international people, uh, second year in. I put together a, res, uh, a portfolio, if you will. I was working at the time, so this is post-school, and um, designed a collection of watches that I thought were, would be what I would want to say if I was in the watch world. And uh, I got picked. They called me uh, while I was in New York and said, um, we'd like for you to attend. And yeah, I was one of the, I was the second person um, from America to attend that academy and the only American that year um, to do that and um, learn an incredible amount. You go through each Mason, um, you learn to work within the DNA of those brands. You learn the history of watchmaking, the history of halter couture and jewelry and uh, horology from a lens that's really un unworldly. Like you do, how would you ever learn through that other than apprenticeships um, and living in, uh, in, uh, in Europe or Switzerland or France. Uh, and it was an amazing experience. And then after that, I um, got picked up by Gigi Lecoute um, and did a stint in Valley du Joux. So uh, I think at that point, I was the only American to ever uh, be there uh, and be a part of that. And uh, yeah, kind of learned from behind the scene, like what really goes into the aesthetics and into the process of working with not only a master craftsman, a master watchmaker, uh, a, a horologist, um, a design uh, and a very rich design uh, DNA. How to push that? How to pull that? Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a it was a special time, and, and I'm glad that it the accumulation of those events led me here, which is great. So um, it's it's fun to sort of bring some of that perspective here as well. Now, do you know who was responsible for developing that academy at Richemont? Because I'm so glad you spent a little bit of time talking about it. I was excited when you educated me about it years ago and and i still don't think there's anything like it and if it's still going i don't think it's been expanded at all um mm. who do you know who was responsible was there was there a team or a person that was really behind it yeah there was um bedino who was the at one point uh gabriel bedino uh was the chief creative officer of richmond group um he was one 
um, obviously Relly yeah, very Patino. well known. Yeah, okay. very well known designer. Uh, obviously, a part of Panerai's relaunch and um, and other things. Remarkable designer. So he was sort of like the head, and then um, one other head, chairman of the board of Richmond Group, and, a, and a, his name escapes me right now, but he was a phenomenal character. Um, so someone else on the board there, you mean? Yeah, someone else on the board. And, okay. Um, Sure, you could sort of do some due diligence. I think it's it is still active, and you know, other persons in other places have set up things. Where I mentioned Rolex's commitment to sort of educating uh, watchmakers and yeah, but designers don't come out of that. You specifically were in a watch design program. My understanding, I yeah. could be wrong, is that Rolex's yeah. program is about watchmaking. Yes, yes, it is. So design wise, yes, it's one of the it's one of the few, if not the only. Because people ask me all the time about the genesis of watch designers, and I've had an answer, and that is I'm going to interview some of my favorite watch designers, you being among them, on the superlative show and give them the background story. And <laughs> these background stories, the thing that they have in common is that everybody's a polymath and that everyone sort of came to it accidentally. At some point, they had a drive to do it, so they had the persistent desire to do it. They're like, I want to design watches. I want to design watches. But like, you know, Eric Giroud, who is a very well-regarded, well-known Swiss watch designer, he comes from a music background. Right. Yeah. Some people come from car design, architecture, mathematics, mm -hmm. um, you know, different types of sciences. People have been chefs like there's no one way. But the no. thing is, you have to be cultured in multiple areas. Hopefully some of them are classics. And then when you approach watch design, you not only understand how a watch works, but and this is crucial, what people like about them today. And then on top of that, you have to have a good design sense and be able to articulate that visually and say, I know what a watch is. I know what people like about watches and I know how to make something that people uh, will think is beautiful and desirable. Like those are three very different skills and they're very hard to get to. And it's it's a multidisciplinary approach. That's what being a polymath is. It's liking a bunch of different topics and being mm -hmm. curious and People like that are made, you know, like you have to like hope that society puts them together and you then you have to discover them and give them entrance. And that's what it is. It's the watch industry saying, hey, if you're someone like Brandon Little and you have all these desires, we'd like to recruit you. And and that's very difficult right now. Like you, you had to find all these things. You had to get really lucky. You had to be right place at the right time. That's not good enough for me to sustain a creative drive. I was just with an executive yesterday from a big watch brand who lamented to me that at the corporate groups, there is not enough creative talent. There's been a creative flight away. There's a serious need for strong, assertive, creative personalities with vision at watch brands, especially in the corporate side. And there is there is not a good connecting point. You know, what 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 do you think that the industry can do to make itself more attractive to more people like yourself? Yeah. Um, I mean, A, you have to open your door. So, you know, do, does anyone know it? It's a possibility. Um, you know, I, I am lucky enough to have had the, the uh, inquisitive you know, approach to life and be like, well, what is that? Well, somebody's got to do that. Like, do you, can you make money at that? Like, you know, like, what is it? Right. And I think, you know, I think you got to open the door. You've got to do things like this. You've got to, uh, you know, hopefully educate people. We have, uh, we have, we are actually in a CCS building, the uh, College of Creative Studies for Detroit. So we have a, we have an involvement there to shed light on, you know, industrial design, watch design, watch you know, technicians and, and all of those things. And we do a pretty good job at, at doing that. Um, I know others now try to do that within, you know, other colleges like um, Savannah um, as well. 
So you've got to, you've got to put effort in it. You know, I think as a society, it, it also has to be, uh, seen as a, as a, as an option. So, I mean, if you're in schools, you know, I, you know, where I grew up, at least, you know, it was like, Hey, okay, you could be a lawyer, you could be a doctor, um, or you go into trade school and that meant, you know, carpentry or welding. Welding was a really big thing, uh, where I grew up, but it wasn't until, uh, you know, a reality show about welding motorcycles, what I've ever would have put together that I could like make a living and actually make really awesome objects that, you know, roll, right? Like right. it took something of that catalyst to almost, in my opinion, like wake us back up about craft and what does craft mean through the lens of, of, you know, us makers. And I, and I, and it's a funny thing, but I really do give a lot of credit and I can't remember the name of that show. What was it? The, the motorcycle show where the, the dad and the son, uh, were making, you know, motorcycles. Like it's American like, chopper. Yeah. Like something's going to happen. There's all this drama and they create these amazing things and you, you pinstriping came back. You had airbrush, you know, you had painting aspect of, of that. So you got this sort of thing. Like you're like, Oh, wait a minute. If I don't want to go down this channel, if I don't want to be a doctor, that's just not my aptitude. It's not where my heart is. It's not my whatever, you know, it was almost like, well, I guess I'll settle and be X. Well, no, like now it's amazing. You can go in other places and maybe that's maybe social media, maybe the internet has, we have to thank it for that maybe. Um, and you know, so I think, you know, Watches, the great thing about watches over the last 20 years is they became something. I think, you know, post 30 years ago, they were something, but it was so cottage. It was so small and you didn't necessarily have like the plethora. You didn't have amazing, you know, uh, outlets like yours, um, or, or revolution. You, know, you didn't have watch magazines, that's for sure. Um, and so it had to sort of like disappear and then it got brought back. And when it brought back, it, it was amazing because people relate and, and become inspired by watches and the fact that it's just this machine that keeps time, which is amazing. Um, and it got glorified and then it, then it got picked up, you know, by, by personalities. And as we all know, you know, like that works and people wear it and people are like, Hey, what's that? That's really interesting. And then I think you learn a little bit more and there's, there are some, you know, good road shows that, that, introduce people to uh movements i mean we talk about you know at shinola we make quartz movements and pe sometimes people are like oh quartz movements like eh, what is that you know <laughs> and i'm like if you would see you're gonna see yeah you're gonna come and, and take a look if 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 i would show you a small jar and i mean the top of a jar no bigger than what you would put on like a spice jar lid all the micro engineering components that go into making a quartz movement it is unbelievable i remember the first time i toured Rhonda, who's our partner and saw someone with magnifying glasses and these giant you know screens putting these things together it's 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 micro engineering um at its greatest um and it's really interesting have you visited the gift store for watch lovers it's called the blog to watch store and we carry art apparel and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts you can buy your wristwatches elsewhere, but at the Blog to Watch store, you can celebrate your watch collecting hobby with high quality original products. The Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at a Blog to Watch. We also carry some incredible art that will look great on your walls, letting everyone know about your watch collecting enthusiasm. 
The bespoke yet affordable products which the Blog to Watch store carries have been designed and curated by the Blog to Watch editorial team. We ship internationally and right now are offering free global FedEx priority shipping on every shirt and watch pouch. We add new products all the time, so be sure to check out store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. What Brandon was talking about in general was just the industry opening its doors and making it possible for more people like you to enter. And now I want to talk about Zodiac because I think a lot of people in the community will be familiar with sort of what you can do uh, as a a function of what you did at Zodiac. You helped Fossil Group do one of several relaunches of Zodiac, this historic Swiss brand that sort of became popular in the 50s with diving watches and stuff like that. You made uh, this new collection that just ended up being super successful. It's still the cornerstone of what they do right now. It's still the design language they use. It's still basically mostly the same watches. Talk about what you did there and, and why you think it was so successful. Uh, I mean, that was about seeing something from a different lens and just being true to it. I see, that was probably the closest design approach that was taken that was similar to sort of how you would look at it if you are at a, another historic brand. You would dig so deep into the archive and you would put yourself in the mindset of the persons who originally started that brand. And you'd ask yourself, like, what would it be like to live in BLBN in, in, in 1888, or, interesting, you know, interesting. 1882, really, uh, or, you know, in the early 1900s? Like, what's that neighborhood like? Right. Like, you know, what's your, <laughs> what's your coffee conversation for those who have been to BLBN? It's incredibly small, very focused watch town. So clearly you would have been having coffee with some incredibly other notable watch, uh, uh, figures at that time who started some of the most popular brands to the state. Now, I'm not going to get into naming them, but basically you had the who's who of current day watchmaking originating in that province of Switzerland and others, but, you know, very small circle. So you can imagine. So you became a time traveler. uh, I think you try to put yourself in that train of thought. So you can ask yourself, well, like, why did that happen? Why was the name that? Why, why did they choose that path versus this path when your neighbor was clearly doing this? You could have done that, but you didn't. You sort of went and you did this. And I think once you unlock that, I thought that was, to me, that was like sort of the unlock for the bat brand's potential was at that point in time to go a little bit against the grain and what others were doing. And we really focused back on the heritage of that and the fact that they did things incredibly early. There are a lot of one, there were a lot of uh, records set by that um, early time with Zodiac. Um, And it was a really authentic approach. And I was very fortunate to be trusted in, um, you know, putting down a lot of, trials that didn't work were were going after the wrong things for the you know maybe the wrong reasons or the right reasons at that point in time and and i had an amazing one of the greatest teams i've ever known uh in in blbn uh that's still there and still working on this project uh and happy to give them a shout out and and tima and crowd and, and parts of the fossil group um that are just so ingrained in in the swiss made uh way of doing things and watchmaking and there's a um, just a great skill set over there. Um, so yeah, I was really fortunate. I really, it was a beautiful time. Uh, it was, that's when you and I met obviously. Um, and you know, it was also a lot of putting something back on the table that was, was, was thinking through it in, in a bit more of a, a watch way, but still with a, a 
point of view that was different to the to the norm. And I think that's part of that Western conversation we we're having earlier. Um, and I think ultimately that's the same, a very similar point of view that we are having here at Shinola, you know, is, is yes, we are part of something that's incredible. It's got a lot of legacy and, and the people that you work with and the knowledge that they have, but then it's, how are we becoming a part of that collective? And then so who are, are, who are you time traveling with Shinola, right? Like I kind of get who you time traveled <laughs> with Zodiac. Now, you have to be, I think, even more creative. You're obviously an American now. What era are you in? What are you inspired by? Like, what are you seeing in your time travel we, fantasy? I mean, we get inspired, number one, by the people that we work with. Number two, by the environment that we live and breathe. So um, Detroit's an incredible city. Um, for those who have been here, and, and you see a lot of actually movement here, you get a lot of creatives floating in throughout the year. Um, it's just got this raw sensibility, this ingenuity to it, this can-do idea. And it's in a position not much too dissimilar to sort of like Tribeca back you know, 20 to 30 years ago, where you have the space and you have the ability to be creative and make things. Um, and you get, you know, you've got machinists here. You've got like, you've got, uh, you know, hand lettering uh, artisans you've got leather craftsmen so you get you've just got a really great mix of makers um and i think that's a really perfect situation a perfect storm to where you know we launched the mechanic and and that dial um the colleague and, and person of my team uh it's a design director greg was inspired by like all the plethora of old vintage sign painting uh, paraphernalia that's all over the place. If you drive down parts of Detroit, there's just all these amazing old uh, mechanic gas stations and you know workshops and stuff. And they have all this great as you you'll see this in parts of LA as well. These hand painted signs. So we're like, oh, that's really interesting. Like that could be different. Like what could we? What would happen if we took that and 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 thought about that for a dial? And then what if we you know added that to a manual line? Well, why why would you do a manual line? Well, we're like, well. Gosh, that's like the beginning of it all. You know, it's like the exhibition case back. It's just the most simplistic analog version of this whole story. And we're lucky enough and, and we've, we've learned and we continue to learn and we continue to implement the things that after we learn from um, that we now have the ability to do some really different things. I mean, the, the dome structure on that dial is insane. The, the doming on the hands is, is not something that people would be like, okay, let's go do that. That's going to be easy. Like, absolutely not. And it feels very uh, Americana. I think that's what you did well with yeah. it. Like I see yeah. it and um, I see a lot of that. You know, this. I remember those hand-painted watch faces, especially for clocks. Yeah. I saw neon there. Um, yes. I, I, I think that there's a way of maybe using tritium gas tubes in the future to emulate neon because no one's done that in the watch space like you grew up in america and you see this amazing heritage of old neon store clocks and and stuff like that and they're cool and they and they glowed and there's got to be ways of emulating that look so um yeah. I, I saw a lot of that and i feel that if you are a uh, a person who has americana as part of your collective nostalgia these are going to resonate with you and i think you did a good job but it seems like this is just the start it's just a start. I mean, everything we do has a story. Um, we, we always try to bring it back home, whether that's local to Detroit um, or some rich legacy. I mean, obviously, you had mentioned earlier that the, the railroad pocket watch, and then that obviously was the birthing point of, uh, of the wristwatch, and they were just gluing wires onto it, right? Like, they were literally welding wires onto a, a, a watch. So you had the crown at 6 o'clock, and you had sort of this quasi-strap going through the, the part of that 
pocket watch that hooked onto the chain and then they soldered <laughs> wire lugs onto the backside. And there you have, you have kind of like this early interpretation of a watch. And, and I think you there, you sort of see the DNA of when we picked up Runwell with its signature wire lug construction. And then we take it just a little bit further. Um, we, we just give it a little bit of, of, a, of an aesthetic pinch um, where it's, where it's nostalgic, but it's utility, but it's qualitative. We're pulling in the traditions that we've learned, um, whether that's from me or from our founders and all the relationships that we've had over the decades. Um, you know, we're dangerous enough, I like to say, uh, <laughs> and maybe sometimes, you know, a little bit thinking too far from that one side versus the other. But we're like, hey, if we start marrying this all together, you get something really authentic and really interesting. And I think that's, to me, the, the beauty of Shinola, of a, any Shinola product, but, you know, definitely the watches is that there's a, a story to be told. And I can't tell you, and it's a bit of a tangent, but I can't tell you how many people that I come across and, and all my colleagues come across from the brand that have a story about when they bought their Shinola. It's the most amazing thing that you'll ever witness. And if you're sort of like new to it, and you're in some some random environment and they're like, oh, you work for Shinola. Let me tell you about this time. I got this Shinola on this thing or I saw this and I loved it and I was gifted it and this, this and this. And it evolves and you get just this incredible, it goes back to that customer, right? And yeah. you're just like, wow, that's why, you know, number one, we're doing it when you walk the floor and you see incredibly passionate people with jobs and, and loving what they're creating. Number two, Full circle, you get it when you're out in the street and someone's like, oh, you work for Shinola. It doesn't even matter what you do. It's just that, oh, my God, like you're a part of that. Yes, I bought my, this watch or this was gifted to me and I just love it and I've got eight now. You know, it's like, it's like, wow. And, you know, and now we've afforded ourselves and, and through, you know, a lot of hard work and a lot of people, we can now do that with automatics. Uh, we can now do very technical product. We do all of our testing in-house on our Monster Watch. It's certified you know, dive watch. Um, and we've got manual lines and we've got automatics and we've got regatta timers and we've got limited edition chronographs that, you know, that we're selling out I and mean, we can't even make enough of them. And, and, you know, those, those are at two ninety ninety five. great, great, great product. Um, so, you know, trials and tribulations, it's never easy. It's not easy for anybody. But I think the passion is showing through. I said the steadfast ingenuity um, to what we started 10 years ago is, is very much alive and strong. And with all of that comes, you know, hopefully at the end of the day, you get to create products that, you know, and watches that, that people relate to and sort of become conversations, become a part of their, their, their own little culture. <laughs> no, so for me, I think what's been sort of an interesting experience with Shinola, and this has been unlike many luxury brands, is I've seen a lot of them on wrists out and about over the last decade. You know, a lot of these sort of high-end brands come in and just by by nature of what they are, they're going to be so elusive in the wild that you're so rarely going to see one. But because Shinola was meant to be, and I think continues to want to be a mainstream product, you would see these watches everywhere and they're very distinctive and, you know, they they did their job very well. And I think the initial launch into the market and the American market was very successful and did a good job. And uh, I don't know that Shinola gets enough credit for that. And right now, um, it seems like the product is getting, you know, just such much more attention, um, really increasing in a lot of ways. I'm guessing that it's still going to be core quartz 
but that this, you know, the automatic side is going to be a, a still a, a real and big part of it. I guess one of my questions is where are prices going to stabilize to? Because I'm seeing, you know, a lot of different prices hovering from about 1500 bucks to over 3000 for the Mackinac. Um, and I know that there's going to be a variety and I know that there's going to be a shift, but where, where is it going to stabilize? What's the average going to be? Because at some point you have to you know, you have to settle somewhere because that's your audience base, right? Because as as you shift price points, I think what needs to be said about America is even slight shift shift uh, shifts in price that are slight can radically change who you're selling to. So, wh- where do you want to be selling at? Yeah, um, I mean, I think you know, the brand has a, an incredible elasticity, if you will. Um, I'd say that we're probably where we want to be right now. Um, we we still want to be well worn and worn out, right? We don't want to, you know, be put in a drawer and, and, right. and, and that sort of thing. So I think I would say we're, we're about where we want to be. And maybe that ends up being, you know, in that 800 to 14, 14, $1,500 spectrum. You know, if you, if you think of the, the average AUR price, right? Like average prices, but we've got a very, you know, we're obviously incredibly dedicated to our courts uh, platforms and we continue to do that. That's, that is you know, what we assemble here in Detroit, um, and we're going to continue to animate there. And it's the it's the it's sort of the base model of uh, Runwell, but we also have Runwell in an automatic. And we see we try to give them each a little bit of something that one doesn't have, so that you get the ability to have both. And I think um, to answer your question, I think we're kind of in the in the spot that we feel is comfortable. And and you know, of course, like you have to be mindful of things, you know, obviously right. there's a lot of, you know, uh, headwinds, you know, in the, in the world of making things right now. Um, so sometimes we'd have to adjust, but I think, uh, we're sort of where we want to be. Okay. No, that, that, that makes sense. Now, when it comes to the sort of focus on the enthusiasts, that's what I see happening. This is how I would describe it. I'd like to hear your thoughts, but the brand is still trying to sell to the core, uh, type of mainstream American luxury buyer, but now there's sort of going to be one arm of the company which is going to say, hey, let's make watches that are enthusiast grade for enthusiasts, experimenting with things here and there. Um, it's just going to further legitimize the brand and it's going to open it up to sort of the watch collector side that maybe hasn't had as, as much to enjoy in it. Is, is that correct or is there a different philosophy philosophy yeah. at play? No, absolutely. Um, okay. I think, you know, and this goes in, in other, I think it's an interesting way to sort of, you know, there's the um, the more general population or the, you know, customer base that are looking for quality, incredible things. And then you can always geek out. You can always go North <laughs> and, and that could be in, in watches. It could be in audio. It could be in leather where you go, you know, really in deep into it. Like what is that article? What is the move? You know, all those things. And I think, uh, I think, Sometimes, like, you know, certain brands don't have the ability to skate both of those. They're either one or the other. And I think a really beautiful thing that has happened is that our customer has also grown with us and his or her appreciation for all of these things has grown as well. So they're also asking us, like, hey, well, what does that, you know, what does an automatic look like in this idea? And so the awesome part is that we get to sort of help walk them through that journey where you might come in and be an original purchase of, of the run well, um, in, in our courts. And then we sort of introduce a new body and, and automatic, and we get to bring you down that journey and walk you down that path. And again, again, it goes back to, I think what you talked about earlier is that it was about building a relationship first. 
It was about selling them something way, way down the line. It's not really yeah. even about selling, really, right? Um, so it's about just it's about producing our passions and creating jobs, and the byproduct of that is gratefully um, selling things. So now I know in Europe, one of the common reasons that people like mechanical watches is it feels more traditional, and in Europe, buying and owning and being part of tradition is something that has. Uh, value, both huh? personally and, and social status value. Sure. In America, yes, tradition means something, but we have less of it around us, and there seems to be a little bit more emphasis on novelty and independence and personality. So I guess the question is, Americans undoubtedly like mechanical watches, but my belief is they like them for a different reason than Europeans. Um, how would you describe uh, why it is that an American might, might like a mechanical watch versus a quartz watch? I mean, I can really only speak about myself, I guess, but for me, it was the magic of it all. You know, I think if I put myself in the position of growing up in Switzerland, let's just say, you're naturally, I don't want to say desynthesized to it, but you grow up with like this thing, right? It's all over. You've been in Geneva, like it's, it's everywhere, right? And I think for the most part, it's, a, it's, it's magical, and I think, um, at least in my opinion, when you see a mechanical movement, course movement also, but a mechanical movement, when that heart starts to pump and it's got continuous energy, you know, you're just sort of like, oh my gosh, like, what is that? And how does that actually work? Like, it's almost mind bending when you think someone invented it, to be honest. Um, uh, but I think that, you know, I think there's a, a unknown, I think there's a magic to it because it's intrinsically like, you're not going to walk down the street and see a watchmaker in your local store it's it's really rather rare right right, right. Um, at least you know early on and, and even nowadays you know if you go to a, a, a very nice jewelry store or, or a watch store or you know some of these really great stores that are out there handful of them are in very small or in the bigger cities so new york san francisco la or whatnot but still even there and this is interesting i, I ask myself this a lot it's like they don't really ever expose their watch department you know, like you don't like see behind the hood at jewelry store X every once in a while. Now you'll see a jeweler's bench, but you rarely see all the tools and all the machines that go into testing and, and assembling or at least just uh, servicing uh, a watch movement. And what and I think that's part of that lure, right? Like it's like that unknown. And I think that that's really interesting and special. And, and, you know, I think in Europe and other places, you grew up with that, right? So that was just, that's a lot more, you see that a lot more, especially in these beautiful old little cities where you have these watchmakers that are just been there for decades and that's their craft. Um, so I don't know. I think maybe that's, to me, that's it. Like, I think if, as a Westerner, not having it so readily available, the minute I discovered it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. And I became just enthralled with it. It's cool. That's for me, Is I, I, I agree. It's sort of like, why haven't my friends been talking about this? Like, am I the only one that thinks this is cool? And then you, <laughs> you realize eventually, oh, there are other nerds like me that find this cool. And uh, we will always be a brotherhood of nerds and nerds we yes. shall be. Yes. But, you know, I've, I've never met someone that's looked through a loop at a watch event or, you know, whether that's in our workshops or anything that has not been blown away by what goes on in there. Um, I, I, it's, I, I don't know about you. I've never met someone that's looked at one and been like, Oh, okay. Yeah, whatever. And just walked off. It has never happened to me. So I think like that in itself is an opportunity. No, but, it's universally impressive. I think that the leap that you need to take after that is first, you need to sort of discover that they're cool. 
And then the leap after that, which is crucial for the industry is, and now I want to spend money to buy one. Because there's plenty yes. of things that you can think are cool that you're like, that's cool when people have it, but like, that's not for me. But being like, you want a watch, you want to spend money on one, right? And then maybe you want to buy another watch and you feel the urge again. And then it becomes this sort of habitual thing, which is, you know, that, that, that's when you start spending money on the hobby. Yes, and it, and it, it can go quick. <laughs> well, I mean, but that's ultimately what it is, is, you know, the industry has to facilitate a healthy hobbyist community. Yes. It's becoming a hobbyist, which makes you a watch consumer. There's such a small amount of actual repeat business that happens from non-hobbyists. Yes, there's going to be people that are going to get yes. gifts or buy one nice conservative watch for business meetings or whatever. But the industry seems to really rely on repeat customers who will buy multiple watches over their life, hopefully more than one a year. And they and they are, even if they don't think of themselves as being hobbyists. And so what do you need to have hobbies? You need to have media. You need to have opportunities for them to learn and to get together. You need to make them feel like they are actually a community. And it's funny because as much as the watch industry relies on itself to keep itself going, it's so combative. There seems to be so little effective teamwork. Why do you think that is? I, you know, I've asked myself that question. You know, you know what I mean, right? Like, how would yeah, you say yeah. that? I say, like, I, lack of teamwork. You might say all-out constant war. <laughs> it used to be. I mean, you know, top secret. It's, you know, it's a national security level. You know, and, and I think I brought up earlier, you know, Basel is a trade fair. People usually kind of let their guards down there, and you would get this con congregation of like-minded persons and actually have for a chance for a minute to sort of, like, talk. <laughs> and share and get inspired by it regardless of like status or, or whatnot. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there was, a, it was a highly competitive market for a long time. I think that there were, there wasn't, you know, the pool of creativity or the pool of manufacturing maybe wasn't as great as it once was. So there was a lot of investment there. And I think a lot of people held it close to their chest. And I think, you know, Obviously, a blog to watch and, and others came on board. And I don't know if you remember, I'm sure you remember, actually, it was like, ah, I don't know if we should be online talking about stuff. You know, it's like, I don't know. Like, it's, it's I had to break our, those doors down. That was yeah, my job. It's like, oh, uh, somebody might criticize it. I don't want to hear a criticism. And that's very hard. And, you know, then I don't know how to answer the criticism or, or you know, so dialogue was hard. I mean, it, it was challenging. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I think um, as a collective mass, it's amazing what can be accomplished. And I think when you have a community and I, and I do think we're in a stage right now. And, and I spoke about being at an event in New York a couple of weeks ago or a week ago. And it was really refreshing because, you know, obviously we're all coming through something incredibly traumatic and it changed a lot of people's lives uh, in the last couple of years. And it felt like everybody just wanted to share and just sort of like be okay with, well, you're doing that your way. Wow. That's really interesting. You're doing it or that, that way. That's really interesting. I want to be a part of that. Or how can I help you be a part of that? And I think like, hopefully, you know, we get over this. I think the watch industry itself has gone up, it's gone down, it's gone sideways, it's gone left ways, it's gone uber traditional. It's, it's pop culture has influenced it. That's no doubt. So you've got brands that were doing things now that would have never in a hundred years, never would have done what they're doing. And it's nice because there's no way for anyone to be in those seats and not be paying attention to what others are doing, right? Like it's impossible. It's, it's obviously still a very small community. Um, and I think if everybody could just get on board with like, wow, we all love watches and we're all doing our best to create watches and some are doing it one way versus another, 
uh, it's, it could be amazing. And, and, and it, I agree that more, more collaborative it could be. And uh, we'll talk more about that. And I guess we'll just have to make our own collaboration experiences, right? Like that's what th- this industry ends up making you do. Like it, it won't make the event for you. It'll just yeah. force you to make that event happen and run it your way and show everyone this is the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. And uh, I think and every, <laughs> yeah. And I think everybody, I mean, ultimately, and there's, I've met so many great people that within the last 10 years are just so passionate about watches and so passionate about all the details that go into that. And, you know, the beauty of the internet, it's given someone a place to congregate and at least share within that passion. And that's, you know, step number one. So, okay. La- last question. Uh, yeah. Cause we're, we're, I think we're basically over time at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, for the watch enthusiast, in terms of, of Shinola, what are you going to build as being those things where people think that you only get it from Shinola or those sort of key attributes? You know, maybe it's a particular design style, material, uh, complication, uh, price point, material. Like, what, what exactly is it that when you, when you think about Shinola from a collector's perspective, you're going to be like, that's the brand that makes this and they specialize in this and they only do this. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, mean, I think there's an incredible value add. Obviously, we're at a very dynamic, approachable price point. But, you know, I'll talk about Runwell for a second. Um, you know, when you look at Runwell, and I mean look at it, don't like just glaze over it. But when you take it off your wrist and you look at the underside, you look at the, the construction methods that we use, you look at the polishing, you look at the surfacing, um, you feel the weight in it. You know, there's a case back on our Runwell that basically redefined what case backs look like. I'm very confident in saying that, that when that thing was launched 10 years ago, um, most people have been like, what, like you're going to put all that detail into that case back. And it's those little things I think that add up to a very rewarding experience, a very qualitative experience. There's a certain weight to all of our products. We don't do super light. We do work with like titanium and stuff like that. But when we, when we do it, we want to make sure there's a certain substance to it, a certain weight to it. And I think that there's a certain, craft element an american craft element when you look at the way our leather straps are treated um you know they're not over designed and there's a hand to it i think like that to us that to me is sort of our language and i think is our you know you talked about all these other you know we talk about legacy brands and what they own and i think whenever at the end of the day 10 more years from now 50 more years you know if you pick up a runwell i think you'll intrinsically be like oh that american brand that that shinola brand made that had this certain weight to it. it's almost like those old bumpers from like a buick back in the 60s you know they don't make that anymore and you're always like well that was a thing and that's what i remember about those cars and the way the door sounded when it shut um and i think you get that when you get our watches i think if like other things that we make like our handbag our leather is very we don't make the lightest bag in the world and and we won't it's got a certain weight and a certain substance to the leather and if you talk about our audio turntable the runwell turntable it, it weighs like 50 pounds and it's solid aluminum milled you know in the united states so it's like there's this quality to it and there's this heft to it and this substance and i think like that's our that's our dna and then there's humility and i think that there's fun i think ultimately we try not to make everything so damn serious because it's got to be approachable i are we want to add conversation to the table we have stories we tell those stories we are proud of those stories the mechanic sign painting story is a great one that's just you know it's a spice of life if you will and it gives it a part a point a, a 
place of origin and point of, of difference. Um, so I hope that that comes across in, in the things that we make. Okay. Those you are, know, those are yeah. good things. Those are great yeah. things. And I think, you know, you know how it is. You're going to have to do these events where you have to create experiences and people learn these, these values one by one and reinforce them over time and then eventually build a community. I mean, this yeah. is, this is the long journey that the brand has to go down in addition yes. to having, you know, great designs and great, in great products. Um, yes. Brandon, where can people find you on the internet and anything else you want to plug? Come to Shinola.com. Uh, we have 20 stores, so please go and, and, and see those, L.A., New York, uh, Dallas, other places, um, and spend time in, in the store. Spend time online. We've got a great story section where you can really understand who we are, dig deeper than just the surface level. I think that's very important. And come visit us. I think you'll be blown away by the experience of being in the store about this warm, inviting experience that you get and just the passion that is shared with not only watches, but everything that we do. Uh, and, and I can guarantee you, you'll walk away and, and be pleased with, with that experience and hopefully come back at some point in, your, in, in that relationship and, and become a partner. Awesome. Everyone should do that. Thank you again. My guest has been Mr. Brandon Little, the Vice President of Design at Shinola. Brandon, thank you so much. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com.